back to an episode of Be Here for a While. Today's episode of Be Here for a While is brought to you by Cove Migraine Medication. Saving my life. Let me tell you. I will tell you about it. And I'm going to give you a promo code in case you get migraines. Let Cove help you out. Okay, keeping this intro super duper short because I am so excited about my guest today. If you listened to last week's episode, hopefully you watched uh, the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix to prepare you for this, or I suggest after the podcast, you immediately watch it afterwards because it tells so much of Amanda Knox's story, but she also goes into it in depth on the podcast today. I just, I honestly found her absolutely delightful. I thought I just... Really, 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 really lovely girl who got a really bad rap in the media. And uh, I mean, such a scary, scary thing happened to her. And she's really come out in the best way she possibly can from this scenario. Um, You know, my heart goes out to her roommate, Meredith, that was murdered. Uh, I, I mean, if you guys don't know this story, I feel like you have to, though. I'm not just like spitting random info at you. you. You must have known something of what happened. But if you don't, Amanda's going to uh, walk through the steps of uh, being in Italy and uh, being wrongly accused of a crime she did not commit, spending years in prison, uh, going through two trials, uh, and where her life is now. She's married. She works with the Innocence Project. She has really good insight. Like, obviously, uh, I would assume most of you have not been... Um, imprisoned for a crime you didn't commit. Um, But even if you haven't, she just gives actually some really great life advice for how to handle a really difficult situation and how to just get through it one day at a time. And even, I mean, she has found kind of a silver lining in all of this. So yeah, I just want to get into it. And uh, yeah, so without further ado, give it up for Amanda Knox. Cool. But thank you so, so much for doing this. I, uh, I also listened to part of uh, Labyrinths earlier. Uh, okay. Really good production value. Like even just like all the, like the, like the quick clips of like what it sounds like to be on a cruise or like the ads and stuff like that. That was really cool. Yeah, we had a fun time with that. Um, we originally wanted to use real life cruise commercials for uh-huh. the opening of that. Just to give a sense of like, you know, what is the cruise experience that is promised to you? But then we discovered that there were all of these legal issues with that. So we just decided to make our own that were in the spirit of. Yeah. Um, so all of those are like, you know, me and my friend singing a little tune that Chris Oh, really? It's up. actually you yeah. guys singing? Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. I was wondering that. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, yeah, we had to like, have a little wine and get in the spirit. <laughs> that's awesome. Is he going to join us later to talk about the podcast or? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So let's just talk about like you stuff first and then we'll go into, into that. Okay. Sounds great. So I'm sure you're probably like sick of telling the details of what happened leading up to, uh, you know, finding your roommate murdered and the day of, but I encourage my listeners on my last week's episode to watch your documentary, but for anyone who hasn't, could you kind of just like run through the details of, you know, cause I was also just listening to you. Um, I think it's on your friend wrongly convicted and mm-hmm. there was a lot, even I didn't know based on, you know, the documentary, because obviously they can't cover everything all the time. It's like little tidbits. But like, I have so many questions even about like, why did they not look at Philomena? And like, so yeah, if you could just run (laughs) through kind of what happened, like how you ended up in Italy and all that. Right. Um, Yeah. So like the the quick and 
the quick but also detailed version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was in Italy on a study abroad program. Um, I was planning on spending about like three semesters in Italy, um, about like nine months in Perugia. And then over the summer, I was going to do a poetry program in Rome. That was the plan. And um, I didn't go, I wasn't there for very long um, before this horrible tragic thing happened. Um, I had met this guy named Raffaele Solecito, who was like my boyfriend of five days uh, mm -hmm. prior to this horrible tragedy happening. Um, honestly, meeting him is probably what saved my own life because I very well could have been home that night if it wasn't for the fact that I was spending the night over at Raffaele's house. So um, in many ways, he is inadvertently my savior in all of this. Yeah. Um, Wait, can I stop you real quick? I think I forgot yeah. to tell you to put headphones on. Can you do that? Okay, I can run and do that. Hang on. I don't know that it really makes a difference, but people tell me it will echo, so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Do you still hear me? Yep. Perfect. Okay. Great. Um, so yeah, basically so, he kind of saved your life because you were. Yeah. I mean, we were, I was over at his house and it was just happened to be circumstance that I wasn't at home with either alone or with Meredith, who knows what, have, what would have happened. Um, so anyway, I was there, uh, this guy who was a local burglar who had a long history of breaking and entering into people's places. Like, you know, another thing a lot of people didn't know, um, also because it didn't end up like making a big, or didn't take up a lot of space in the Netflix documentary, was that the guy who actually murdered my roommate was a known entity. Um, he was a, a guy who had a criminal record for doing the exact same thing that he did in our case it's just in this case he happened to come to he broke into a house and I think what I think happened is that Meredith came home while he was already there and mm -hmm. he attacked her but it's not I'm not entirely certain it may be that he broke in when she was already there I don't know mm -hmm. um anyway so it's this horrendous thing that happened and instead of waiting for you know, the fingerprint evidence to come back or to, you know, look into the genetic samples that they were picking up, the police instead focused on me. Mm -hmm. And it's one of like the, my biggest frustrations in this entire case is how like someone who, me, someone who was on the margins of this story ended up being made the center of the story against my own will and against the best interests in the, of the case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the evidence all pointed to this guy who committed the murder and then ran away and fled the country. And, you know, they, they found all of that evidence, but instead of admitting that they had gone off on the wrong path, like to mm -hmm. start out with, they instead decided to merge those like two ideas and, turn it into a sex game that I orchestrated as like this femme fatale. Yeah. And, that, like, and then, you know, eight years later, I was still on trial. Yeah. <laughs> so. I want to get into that, but like what, so 
just even like you showing up at the apartment and the, you know, you're seeing like little drops of blood and things. And, and then you, you don't even enter her room on your own before the cops get there. You don't even see her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And additionally, it's not really covered that your other roommate was there and they're all speaking in Italian and yelling around you and all that. And like you not fully knowing the language, you're probably just like, yeah, of course you're going to look awkward and unemotional because you're like, what's going on? Trying to process what's <laughs> happening. You're like, this is yeah. not even. A- so can you explain a little bit of that? Like, just like, so you go, you come home, you find, you know, these little drops of blood, which I mean, could be, I mean, I feel like it looks like a massacre anytime my dad or my boyfriend shave in a sink. Like, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I mean, so, yeah. So the thing that, um, you know, one of the, the images that really made its way around in the, in the media was this image of the bathroom. That Mm -hmm. is the one that I shared with Meredith and the image that the police shared with the world was this bathroom that looked like there were blood stains everywhere. And it was like, oh my God, Amanda has to be a psychopath if she wants to like brush her teeth in that bathroom. But what they didn't acknowledge was that the image that they used, they had sprayed what's called luminol all over the bathroom and the luminol left a pink tinge everywhere. So the actual like blood that was visible was like just a few drops in the sink and like on the faucet and then like on the bath mat, there was like a little splotch on the bath mat. There wasn't like all this blood everywhere. So like, I mean, you know, looking back, I wish that I had like had that sort of like radar for danger Mm -hmm. that would have told me like, oh, maybe this is more than Mm -hmm. what it looks. And instead I, who came from a very safe background who had never had something bad happen to me, didn't have that radar. So I didn't, my alarm bells didn't go off and I didn't think, oh, someone has been murdered. I thought, oh, someone must have hurt themselves or someone had a messy period day, like who knows? Yeah. And so I didn't automatically think, oh, of course my roommate's been murdered. Um, And then when I, you know, discovered that there had been signs of a break-in, one of my roommate's windows was broken. I, you know, I immediately was like, I need to call the cops. But of course, like, I didn't know how to call the cops in Italy. Like I never learned their number. So I had to get my boyfriend to come with me and help me and assist me in this. Cause also I couldn't talk to them. Mm -hmm. So it was him who ended up calling and he was sort of being my translator to the police. So him sort of in between me, who's like upset now because my house has been broken into telling him like, oh my gosh, you know, what, can you tell them, oh my gosh, what's this? And he's not fluent in English either. So there's a like breakdown of translation. Then like I call my, um, my other roommates, only one of them answers. So I had three roommates, Meredith, Laura, and Philomena. Laura wasn't answering. Meredith wasn't answering. Only Philomena answered. She came, she freaked out alongside me. The police came, they broke down Meredith's door, which had been locked from the inside or from the outside, not even entirely certain, it was locked. Mm-hmm. And they found her body. But of course, I never saw her body. I was in a different room, like in the kitchen, talking to the cops through my translator, Raffaele. So here, you know, there's lots already of commotion going on. And Philomena, who did see Meredith's body, screams and becomes hysterical. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going on. The only thing that I can understand Philomena saying is a foot, a foot, un piede, un piede. 
So at that point, the police like rush us out of the house. We are sort of standing in the driveway and I'm trying to apprehend what is happening. I have like, I don't know if there is a, just a foot alone in her room. I don't know if it's her. I don't know. I like literally had no idea what was going on. And like all the way leading up to the police office, like I had, like I picked up little things here and there, like the armadio, they were saying armadio, which is like the closet. And I was uh -huh. like, is there a foot in the closet? Like, I don't wow. like, it was so confusing for me. Yeah. And I like, also I was totally shocked. Like yeah. I did not come home that morning thinking like, this horrible thing is going to be happening. Like I came home that morning to take a shower so I could go have like a nice weekend with my boyfriend in a nearby town. Mm -hmm. So like it was all of it sort of culminated in this like perfect storm of me being, first of all, naive and utterly ill-prepared, but also unable to understand what people were saying and what was going on. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay, if you get migraines, then you know, no two migraines are alike. I didn't even suffer from migraines until like the last couple of years. And I just figured, well, it's just something I'm gonna have to deal with. I know like they're gonna come around that time of the month when my hormones are going crazy. And that's just life now, I guess. But no, it's not. And that's why Cove helps you find an FDA approved treatment that works for your migraine. Cove helps you get the migraine relief you need all online. Go with cove.com and complete a quick online consultation. A licensed doctor will recommend a treatment plan customized to your migraine, and your prescription will be delivered to your door for as little as $10 per month. Just a few minutes of your time and you get a personalized treatment plan from 20 plus research backed doctor recommended migraine medications. And you don't have to worry about running out because Cove sends your migraine meds every month. No insurance needed. No trip to the pharmacy, all online. Meds sent right to your door. With Cove, you can have more migraine-free days. And they've treated over 300,000 migraine attacks and counting. Go to withcove.com to see their reviews. 96% of customers give them five stars. Get the relief you need right now with Cove. So go to withcove.com dot com slash be here for 50% off your first month of medication and free two-day shipping. That's 50% off your first month of medication and free two-day shipping at withcove.com slash be here. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash be here. B-E-H-E-R-E. So do you feel like they had did you feel like they already wanted to form a story in their head in that moment because they were, you know, you know, a city, I think it was like, they didn't ha hadn't had a murder in the last like 20 years or something. And they did it. And it's like, Oh, this is our, this is our time to shine. We really got to show that we know how to handle stuff. Do you think that they had kind of formed a story in their head of like, this will be sensationalized if we pin it on the American girl, or do you think they were just basing it on the fact that, they didn't like your reaction. They thought it was not appropriate because you're also not Italian. Half my family's Italian. They're hysterical. They, they're loud. They talk over each other. They're a lot. Yeah. And like, was it, what do you think happened in that moment? Was it just, and did yeah. you know they were even looking at you? Like, so I didn't understand that they were 
looking at me as a suspect. Um, what I understood over the course of the, the days that I was being interrogated and called into the police office every day, like I was in the police office for hours and hours every day, answering questions, looking at, you know, social media profiles, like Facebook photos that people had done of like Halloween, which is the day before, like I was in there constantly. And I understood that they felt like I was somehow important to the case because they kept calling me back more and more than other people. But I assumed that that was because in our little household, Laura and Philomena knew each other very well. They had known each other for years prior. They had already been roommates for years prior. So the new kids on the block were me and Meredith, and we were the ones who were the foreign exchange students. Mm -hmm. So I assumed that the only reason why the police were talking to me so much was because like Meredith, I was a foreigner and I was likely going to be running around in her same circles, mm -hmm. as opposed to like Laura and Philomena who were, who were older than us and who were Italian. And so they had their own sort of social world. Um, and, and indeed like, I honestly think that's why they initially were questioning me so much. But what ended up happening is, you know, again, culture clash where mm -hmm. I'm from a German household. <laughs> like my family's German. So we express grief and, you know, shock and react to trauma culturally in a very different way. Totally. Um, we tend to be a little more stoic. We tend to be like, I need to hold myself together in this moment so I can have my private moment of grief when I get home. In, mm -hmm. in, in the moment, I need to be like on, I need to be answering your questions. Um, so I definitely had sort of that background with me, but also I have to admit, like, I really truly did not, like, I was a 20 year old kid who had never experienced anything bad in the world. And mm -hmm. so I had a lot of immature reactions to a lot of things. And I, you know, I sought a lot of comfort from my Italian boyfriend who was being very affectionate towards me in a moment of like incredible, you know, distraction and, and grief. And he was the one person who was very kind and close to me in that moment when I was so far away from my family and, and all my friends that I left behind in Seattle. Mm -hmm. So in a way I sort of like glommed onto him as like my safety net. And that was registered weirdly by the cops. They felt that I wasn't being serious enough. Mm -hmm. Granted, I looking back now, I think that that's an excuse that they were just getting vibes from people. And, um, you know, I've been sort of victim blamed a lot for uh, my own wrongful conviction. People sort of put it on me for why mm -hmm. they thought I was suspicious. But like, I, one of the things that I've come to realize is that I was a 20 year old kid who had no idea what was going on and had no power in that mm -hmm. situation. And here were all of these adults who are making really, really important decisions and they did not protect me. They were yeah. not interested in my rights at all. Um, they, they tried to arrest me before my mom could arrive to assist me. And like, I, I used to blame myself a lot for what happened, but I do not anymore. That's I, good. Yeah. Well, the, people, just, the people that are blaming you too, like I'm a very empathetic person. So I can easily, as I was like, watching the documentary be like 
how would I know that I wouldn't start doing stretches? Like I do weird stuff like that all the time. Like weird things to just like self-soothe and calm myself down. So would they prefer that you had an absolute panic attack and act like a psycho? Like probably not. So you were just doing like, you know, little <laughs> or things. Or probably like, yes, but then I don't know. Like, yeah, who knows? Like, who knows? And like, the thing is, you know, again, like there was a whole sort of like the, the, this whole like investigation veered off course when they tried to base their investigation on a character study. Mm -hmm. Like that is not going to tell you the evidence that you need in order to determine who murdered this wonderful young woman. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just like look at the per like the scan the room and say, that's the weirdest person in the room. They must have done it. Yeah. Time and time again, that's been proven to not be the case and to be a horrible way that people get wrongfully convicted. And they had the evidence in front of them that they mm -hmm. needed. They just decided to arrest someone before they had a chance to look into it. And to be fair, like to them, they were under a lot of pressure by the local government to, you know, close the case as quickly as possible. So it didn't become an international media sensation. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, their attempts to not make it an international media sensation turned it into one. Yeah. So. Well, do you think that that really had a lot though to do with, no, because even the prosecutor, when he's talking later and I, and I, I heard you on that um, Irish guys podcast where you were empathetic to him in the sense of like, but, but he, he does say some very problematic things. And so obviously does that journalist, it, it's like, there's moments where you can see that he loved the attention of it, where he was like, you're like something like, talking about like everyone's shaking his hand as he walks around town. Like part of me thinks that they went off the rails of like, um, and, and the British journalist who was like, I think everyone thought it was really cool. They were talking to a British journalist. I'm like, right. They, it's almost like they don't know the Freudian slips that they're saying that are like coming out as like, Oh, you were really, really proud of this, this thing. And it got you attention. And do you, do you, did you kind of feel like that in the moment? I, I mean, I doubt you'd really talk to that journalist, but with the prosecutor, did you feel like you had absolutely no control? There's nothing you could have said or done. It was already decided. Yeah. Very early on at a certain point, I felt like nothing I said or did would make a difference. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, like the first several, like the first several days I did my very, very best. And I didn't realize that I was a suspect. I literally did not like up until I was arrested, I had no idea I was a suspect. And even when they put the handcuffs on me and they were telling me, Oh, you're just a witness. Like, don't worry about it. We're taking you somewhere safe so you can mm -hmm. be safe. Like I believed them. I was like totally dumb in the fact that I just believed that. Well, but they are the adults <laughs> and the authority. What else are you going to do? You're going to be like, I'm 20. I know what's going on here. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll change this whole scenario. Like there's no, I, there was no other option really. You said something interesting earlier where you were like, you used to kind of like blame yourself. And I was wondering if like, you know, cause you said like you had some very immature reactions at 20 or whatever, but like looking back, knowing what you know now, would, would there be anything you would do differently? Because I, I don't feel like you could have produced a different outcome based no. on. Yeah, there's no way that I could have produced a different outcome. It really, really was not up to me. Mm -hmm. um, I was not the one like I, I at no point like made any decision <laughs> that like 
that res that would you know result in some big breakthrough in this case potentially asking for a lawyer when I was being interrogated but again like they didn't tell me that I was being interrogated as a suspect like I didn't mm -hmm. understand I really truly did not understand so you know the question of what I have done differently has always been a difficult one for me because like my 20 year old self truly did not know better um and but, what, but would you know better now if that if that same scenario <laughs> happened you probably wouldn't like well, <laughs> let's just say that same no but like okay let's say you didn't have the experience of it let's just yeah. say you were you, I think you're on my age like early 30s let's mm -hmm. say you went to Italy in your early 30s and you decided to live there for a few months this same scenario happened and you had no experience of whatever I wouldn't have like made any different yeah like being being 20 and being 30 and like, if I were 30 and had no experience with law enforcement, once again, mm -hmm. I would have made the exact same mistakes over again. Yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate that that is one of the things that law enforcement tends to rely on is your ignorance mm -hmm. of not only the law, but your position in front of them. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a reality and, um, and I think, that means that innocent people tend to find themselves in situations where they're exceptionally vulnerable. Yeah. So. I think too, though, even if it wasn't, you know, this, this like dramatic criminal case, this stuff happens to people all the time in day-to-day -day life with just like gaslighting and stuff. Mm -hmm. You're in a bad relationship and that person decides to tell everyone around you, there's something wrong with you. And so then they're looking through a lens of like, well, yeah, I guess it was weird that she did that because they're saying there's something wrong with her. Like, mm -hmm. and so it just tends to make people sort of like only look through a certain lens. It's a very dangerous thing that I don't even really know how to avoid, you know, being in that scenario is, I mean, right. besides like, Oh, getting out of like, you know, a bad relationship or friendship where you can maybe see that's happening. But a lot of times you don't even know it's happening to you. Yeah. And the people Until are very good. Yeah. yeah. And people are very good at, at, making you question your own reality. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about like the really, I mean, what really like made me feel physically sick for you is when they told you that you were, had, were HIV positive when you were. Can you tell me how all the little shady things started happening and was that to like mentally break you? Yeah, that was kind of the culmination of this horrible, horrible experience. Like basically the first two weeks of my imprisonment, um, I was isolated from other people. Um, so I was basically being held in, I mean, I've never been to solitary confinement here in the States, but I did not have access to other people except for the guards. So I guess it's the equivalent of solitary confinement. And the only information that I had coming to me was through this guard, this basically high ranking guard who called me into a private office every evening um, to interrogate me about my sex life. It was a male guard wow. who, um, who just would habitually bring me in. I didn't know why. I did like, I, I really like genuinely was like, why is he allowed to talk to me this way? Mm -hmm. Like, I thought that I at first was not understanding him correctly when he was asking me about like what kind of underwear, what I was wearing and what kind of sex positions I liked and who I like to have sex with and would I like to have sex with him? I was like, 
I'm clearly oh. not understanding this person because there's no way he would be doing that. Yeah. But of course he was. And, um, and that sort of culminated in me going in, like being taken, I don't know why, to the doctor, like the medical doctor of the prison and them taking, you know, DNA samples from me, I, I presumably to bring back to the police. But then like a few days later, I was brought back into the medical office and told that I was HIV positive. And that is when I like was utterly shocked. I thought I was dying, um, clearly. Yeah. And this same high-ranking prison official walked me back to my cell and said, well, you should have thought of that before you had sex with all those people. You better write down all the people that you had sex with and all the different ways that you had protection so you can figure out who gave you this yeah. disease. And that's exactly what I did. I went back to my, my cell and I wrote down in my journal every single person in my entire life that I'd ever had sex with and the very next day, uh, they came into my cell and confiscated every single piece of paper I'd ever written on. And shortly thereafter, my journals were leaked to the press and people were talking about what a horrible skank I was because I had made this list of seven people who I'd ever had sex with in my entire life. And they were saying that that was the amount of people I had had sex with since I arrived in Perugia like four weeks before. Oh, you were so, so busy. Wow. Yeah. I, don't even know I how couldn't, can't even go to class. I'm yeah, having, so. <laughs> Look at you. What did that moment so, feel like? Like, I mean, I can't even imagine, I mean, being in prison, let alone hearing some, some of the most devastating news a person can hear. Like, how did you not just absolutely have a full on mental breakdown? I mean, I was very, very close to having one. I started, um, like second guessing everything that I had ever known and believed. I mean, I was already in a situation where someone who I had known, who was a friend of mine, was murdered in mm -hmm. cold blood. I was somehow in prison now, and I was now dying of some horrible disease. Like, I very, very much thought, like, like the thing that went through my mind was, oh, I guess it's because I've had such a good life up until now that somehow like all of the bad things that were supposed to like happen over the course of my life are just happening like right now. Like I was thinking like crazy, like weird karma thoughts. Like I had no idea how to explain what was happening to me except like, oh, I guess I've had like a blessed life up until now and now I'm just supposed to suffer. Yeah. Like it was really, really difficult for me. Like I was trying to find reasons for something yeah. that was ultimately just about human error. And it was- Well, but was that even human error with them or did <laughs> they obviously lie to you? I mean that- Yeah. And they, how did you find out like, oh, guess what? I don't have that. Like- I mean, several weeks later, they, they called me, the doctor called me back in and said that actually it, it was negative. So sorry, like basically that was it. So did and they explain it like it was a mistake, like they accidentally swapped your blood with someone else's or? They didn't explain it. And at this time, like, again, I also have to like emphasize how not fluent in Italian I was. Mm -hmm. So basically I was just being brought in, told something drastic and 
I had to struggle to even make sure that I understood what they were saying. And then I had to go and process for a while in my cell. Mm -hmm. And then like several weeks after that, go back and then be told negative, no explanation, nothing. Um, total denial by the guy, like the police, the prison officials that they leaked my, my prison journal to the press, like just denial and flat out no explanation. So. And did you and your family just think like, it's not even worth it to try to sue them? Like after you were, um, I mean, were you just like, at least it's over now? I mean, I'm talking I mean, like, obviously way later. At the time, at the time it was like, I have, I have to, like I'm being charged with murder the very like last thing I'm worried about is like what a doctor, you know, like as long as I'm not actually sick, I have way bigger problems than suing the prison right now. Yeah. Like, honestly, it was just a matter of like, I'm trying to keep my head above water and mm-hmm. it didn't even occur to me to sue yeah. them because I was just glad I wasn't going to die. Yeah. And everything was already so terrible. So yeah. Can you explain to me like the, I'm sure you've thought about it since and you, you know what it felt like in the moment to be there. And like, obviously if if people listen to enough true crime or watch enough true crime, you know, that false confessions happen so often. Yeah. What made, well, I guess did you didn't necessarily falsely confess. You kind of like had a, a different memory of what could have happened because they said like you were supposed to meet Patrick or whatever. Can you explain like what your mindset was when you were like, well, like, I guess this happened. Like, did you just try to create something so they would stop or. Yeah. So basically what happened is they used the exact same interrogation techniques they used to try to get a, hi baby, (laughs) a a, a person that they suspect did something to confess. So exact same interrogation techniques. Um, But what they were pushing me to try to say is that I witnessed the murder. They wanted me to say that I had witnessed the murder. And I kept mm-hmm. being like, I did not witness this murder. Like, I, I, I swear to you, I did not. Like, I was at my, my, you know, my boyfriend's house. Like, I wasn't there. Yeah. And they just would not believe me. Like, 100% would not believe me. Um, and eventually what they told me was the reason they didn't believe me was because I must have been so traumatized from having seen Meredith get murdered that I didn't remember it. I had amnesia. And that, you know, after hours and hours and hours of being yelled at and slapped in the back of the head and just like told that I'm wrong and everything I know is wrong, I started to think, well, maybe they're right then. Like maybe yeah, I maybe I'm am, going absolutely crazy. Yeah. Like so many horrible things are happening right now. I'm scared. They're telling me what the truth is. So I guess I must have amnesia. And I guess this must be what happened. And it's not like I remembered it. Like there are some false confessions where people will totally create whole new memories. Like I did not create whole new memories. Mm -hmm. What I did was I was like, okay, I guess it, I guess I must have gone home and seen something horrible and I don't remember it. So I'll sign anything that they put in front of me. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I'm sure like subconsciously part of me just wanted them to stop yelling at me and I just wanted to go to sleep. 
Uh, mm -hmm. This was again in the middle of the night. I was so tired. I didn't even like, Man. I couldn't think straight anymore. I'd admit to anything if I was really hungry and really tired. <laughs> I just feel like, like just to get someone to stop me, like maybe like, you know what, fine. <laughs> Can I do totally. I mean, it's real. Like we yeah. are, we're, we're human bodies and we like, we stop being able to function if like we are denied food, if we're denied water, if we're denied sleep, like that, those are forms of torture. It's psychological oh, yeah. torture. And at a certain point, like your mind is willing to do, to like, you know, jump through a ton of hoops to find the e easiest avenue out. And I think mm -hmm. that that's what happened with me. Yeah. Um, and it's hard, like to it's hard to describe to people what that feels like if someone has already sort of decided, like, oh, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. At that point, it's like if someone comes to me with that sort of mindset, like I feel almost powerless to convey, like, look, it can happen to anyone. I swear yeah. to you, like you you cannot mean to like say something that would implicate you, but it can happen if you're totally. pushed the right way. And either people believe it or they don't believe it. And it's for a long time, people haven't believed it. And the, the fortunate thing now is like the Innocence Project has done such incredible work to like prove people innocent through like DNA and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then it's irrefutable evidence that those people who did falsely confess or make false admissions, um, they were pushed to do something that that a lot of people felt like couldn't have been done before. So I think a, like a very simple way to think about it. Like if someone can't wrap their head around, like, okay, you're being interrogated for a crime. Think about even being, I'm saying this like for my listeners, like in a fight with like, say you're in a wrong relationship and you're in a fight with a boyfriend and he's super jealous. And he's like, I think you're cheating on me. I think you were texting that guy that you work with. Hi, how are you? Because you like, him. and they keep saying the same thing over and over again. You just be like, fine, I guess I am just to like, you just want to get out of the scenario of like, right. like you're telling me I'm doing this thing. If, will you just stop if I say I did it, even if it's not true? Like, a, I just think it's just yeah. like a, an overwhelmed sort of, I, I just kept thinking when I was watching your thing and I, 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 uh, I made my boyfriend rewatch it with me. I was like, I a hundred percent would have been convicted hundred percent, maybe even quicker than she was. Like it's, I can't imagine anyone in that scenario wouldn't like, even if you were the smartest person in you know the world and really well traveled or like no it's it's yeah i and that's like the tragedy of it's like how easy can it can something so important go so horribly wrong yeah um that's like the sort of big takeaway for me is like wow it it's all of us getting something so important so wrong can like happen so quickly. Hey, yeah. of boyfriends. Hi. Hello. Do you, uh, are you ready to join? I had like just a few Would more like questions about, sure. but he he can be here for it because it actually involves yeah, yeah. him a little bit too. Okay, come and sit down. So okay, so I was gonna. Nice to meet you, by the way. I'm Rachel. I'm Rachel. I'm Chris. Great, great job on the podcast. Thank I'm you. I'm excited <laughs> to listen to more. Um, so I was gonna ask you like after all was said and done and you ended up getting acquitted and, and you go back to your life, what was it like, like dating or even just being out, <laughs> being out in the world and being like, does everyone like, does everyone hate me? Does everyone think I'm this like, screw, like, how did you feel just even moving about the world? Yeah. So there were like two different phases, right? So when I first came home, I was still technically on trial, right? So I was, on trial and in prison for four years. And then I came home 
And then I was still on trial for another four years. How does that work? And why did they let you leave if that was the case? I right. was a little confused about that. The documentary, yeah. I was like, double, she, she double jeopardy it. doesn't work the same way in Italy as it does here. Yeah. So okay. she was retried and reconvicted in absentia for the same crime. Um, yeah. Just because the prosecution, after she was acquitted and released, the prosecution was like, you know what? We're going to appeal this acquittal. And it went back to trial and then she got reconvicted and then she had to fight that again. So it was four more years of living in limbo, basically. Yeah. And living in that limbo was incredibly difficult because I did not feel at any point like I could set down any kind of roots mm -hmm. because I could just be ripped back up again and extradited back to Italy. And in the mm -hmm. meantime, like being on trial is not an attractive, you know, <laughs> <laughs> trait <laughs> to bring to the world. I, I very, very, I was very isolated is yeah. ultimately what it ended up coming out to. I was, I went back to school, um, which was very, very important for my mental health. But in the meantime, like I had classmates who were like taking pictures of me in class and like posting them to social media and just generally like, so I had some classmates who were totally respectful and kind and wonderful poetry programs perfect for that because everyone yeah. is basically like in their poetry mm -hmm. writing in their own head yeah. like their own like most personal stuff so it was very like so respectful people in poetry class other classes like the big sort of lectures people were just very very unkind um or you know like anyway so it was difficult for me to make new friends I did not make new friends and mm -hmm. I ended up at the time, dating someone who I had dated in college prior to going mm -hmm. to Italy. So I felt safe with this person who I knew from before, who wasn't trying to like take advantage of me. And I at no point ever thought about dating. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't even thinking about making new friends, much less dating someone new. It was like, that was verboten for me. I could not. Um, and then after I was totally definitively acquitted. The Supreme Court in Italy was like, we are like putting a period on this case. She is acquitted, it's done. Um, suddenly like I felt this like weight was lifted off me. I no longer felt like a pack of wolves was chasing after me. Mm -hmm. And I could suddenly start being more proactive in the world, but I was still very hesitant about meeting people. I had sort of developed you know, eight years of being forcibly isolated in prison and then like forcibly isolated myself in, you know, in my tiny little world where I felt safe. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened to that around the same time that I was fully acquitted, his novel <laughs> got published. Uh -huh. And I happened to have been um, writing under like a pseudonym for a local newspaper, I'm um, doing like arts correspondence. So I was like going to plays and writing reviews and I was reading books and writing reviews. Great gig for me because it was like low pressure and allowed mm -hmm. me to like interface with the world from a safe distance. And I happened to have been given a copy of his book to review for the newspaper. So I did had no intention of ever meeting this person because no. <laughs> and it just so happened that like after I had submitted my, my review, I happened to see across the street from my apartment building a flyer for a book reading that he was doing for his book at the local bookstore. And I was like, 
you know, maybe I can go to a book reading and kind of hide in the crowd and like, just sort of like be quietly there. And of course, everyone noticed me when I was there and it was like, I just had to sort of duck my head and be low. But I ended up meeting this guy and I interviewed him for the newspaper. And at the end of the interview, like beautiful about this guy is he doesn't follow true crime. He's a poetry guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he like did. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea who she was really. Yeah. I mean, people were like, you know, that was my um, debut book launch. And, you know, I had begged everyone I knew in the whole world to come to my reading <laughs> at Elliott Bay bookstore. Yeah. Uh, boy, do like, I, boy, do know. I get that with comedy shows. Like, please yeah. just come buy tickets, please. Right, I know. <laughs> um, and so I had, I had expended every ounce of social capital I had to like pack that room. And so that was my day in the spotlight. And then Amanda's there and people are like, look, it's Amanda Knox. And I'm like, <laughs> I shook her hand, but I didn't like know anything about the case. I hadn't followed it. Um, I was in poetry grad school when that had all gone down. Mm -hmm. And I had caught like this little snippets of it through Facebook because I'm from Seattle. Yeah, mm -hmm. Hard to miss. Yeah. And, but I had all the details wrong and I thought someone had been pushed out of a window or something. I didn't know anything. That is, that's the problem with her case. It's like, if you didn't follow it, like, I just was kind of like, I don't know, 50, 50, the girls innocent or guilty. I didn't really know much totally. about it. And like, they, it's constantly like a sex game gone wrong. Like that couldn't even, that's also like, that reminded me so much of like, Partially the satanic panic was true. There are some cases, but like most of it wasn't. And it's just right. like, why are we believing this crazy scenario over mm -hmm. a very simple, obvious thing that most like sexual abuse happens within a home or what, like, right. Right. why is it like, oh, this crazy American, like, wants to play weird sex games. <laughs> I know. It's just like, like, you watch way too many Girls Gone Wild, I think. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, it's so oh crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. So, yeah. I thought, so like Chris was like the perfect guy for you to meet though too that didn't know much about it because I was wondering like you know like say like celebrities or former celebrities or whatever like they have to maybe always be nervous that like oh is someone wanting to date them because then it's like they've they're associated with this thing or they want to use them did you feel that way like when you were about ready to go out in the dating world like are people going to try to just be close to me because of that well, um, so the cool thing about when I met Chris is we actually were, we didn't start dating when we first met each other. Like basically we had a, like a nice moment of being like, oh, you like books? I like books. We should be friends. And it was the first time that I reached out to like make a friend mm -hmm. and we were friends for like the whole rest of the year. And we only started dating in the beginning of like, yeah, it was like, it was maybe nine months later or something. Yeah. Uh -huh. So like we had already sort of developed this nice friendship and then we started dating, but it started out like very casual, like very, you know, tentative. And then after the casual tentative, it very quickly descended into like, mm -hmm. let's move in together. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you waited nine months. That's <laughs> true. Um, but yeah, like, so for me, what I found is that the, the, after I started allowing myself to come into contact with new people, I very, very quickly discovered if someone was going to be super weird towards me or not. Yeah. Um, like the, I don't know if you've had this experience as well, but like if someone's going to be weird towards you, they don't tend to hide it very well. 
No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> and right. So like I've tended to, I, to be fair, like the reality of my life is that I don't have tons of friends. I don't make tons of new friends in the world, but when I do make new friends, I tend to make them re- like really closely. Yeah. Um, we're, we're very tight. And um, so I have my tight friend group. Um, his friend group has been very, very kind um, in adopting me and being so sweet. Um, and yeah, I mean. The, the weirdness often comes from the, those unavoidable um, stranger encounters, like somebody at a toll booth or something where it's like, you know, you have to hand them your card for a minute while they swipe you through and then they recognize Amanda and then it's like they've got her captive while they're holding on. Right. You to can't the even card, walk you know? away because yes. they won't oh give my you God. Right. card back until like you answer their questions uh, about yeah. your interrogation. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I don't need this. Like I, I had that enough yeah. back yeah. then. <laughs> like, How have you learned to like deal with that? Do you just like sort of like, uh-huh, answer the question or you, do you ever just say like, this is my private time. Like, please don't, do you, have you set up like kind of like barriers with that or? Um, She's anti-confrontational. She just sits there and acts polite until it's over. Um, <laughs> just play if it dead. was me, I would yell at them, but <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I don't what know. You want, you but know? also like maybe men can get away with that more. I found that a lot of like ways that women sort of try to get out of bad situations is just like be as small as possible until mm-hmm. it, the threat goes away. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, Another thing that I have to worry about is like, I don't need somebody who's being rude to me. And then I'm like mad at them back going out into the world and being like, totally. this heinous bitch is like such a killer. Oh my God. I only wanted to ask her about her interrogation. What's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> What's <laughs> like, wrong with not letting her have privacy? Yeah. It's, well, it's weird that I, I do struggle when people feel entitled to like, not just my time, like I'm less worried about like time. It's more that they feel entitled to probing into the the worst moment of my life. Yeah. And feeling like I, like they, they, like that's not, them not like empathizing enough to realize that that's going to impact me in a negative way. Yeah. Um, not realizing that. And like, I have to also cut a lot of people slack because they don't know. Like yeah. a lot of people have not been in that position before. And so they, they haven't empathized, but that does mean that like, I end up learning that there's some people who do empathize with that, that I can feel close to. And then there are some people who are totally oblivious that I can't be close to, and I have to try to avoid. Yeah. Um, do you still feel like, I imagine the trauma will never go away. I think that's like, it's almost like you went to war. Like, it's like, it's always going to be a part of you. Um, do you still like, you know, have like panic moments when you go to bed at night about like remembering being in prison and like, maybe Chris can say like how he's helped you through some of that stuff too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mr. Mr. (laughs) (laughs) Um, he's a very needy boy. He he wants to be a real star. (laughs) Um, he's like, I'm sick of everyone talking about you. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He's like, I'm a pretty boy. Um, so here's like, Something that I've realized is that there are different kinds of trauma um, that I've gone through. And I occasionally get triggered by prison stuff. Um, Like if I happen to go visit a prison, the last time I did, I completely lost it and like had a complete fit crying in the car on the way home, Mm -hmm. even though I was there to try to like support this yoga behind bars group, you know, like that kind of thing. 
but like I don't encounter many things that remind me of prison in my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. What I do encounter a lot in my day-to-day life is reminders of the ongoing um, public shaming and mm. um, and not even just like humiliation. Like, yes, I was humiliated in the sense that like my private life became up for public speculation. But ultimately the, like the thing that was most hurtful was how my identity was stolen. Mm-hmm. How like I became this, like who I was came to be this character that suddenly everyone had an opinion about and was judging and was making jokes about. And like, so the fact that like, that's that trauma is not a trauma that like lives in the past, like prison does. Yeah. It's a, it's a trauma that still lives in the present moment and Mm -hmm. thankfully is less today. I feel like less people are being abusive to me today, but I still get daily messages on social media of people, you know, like I put up a picture of my cat and they say, oh, are you going to kill that cat? Just like you killed your roommate, like that kind of thing of how my identity and my life was, Mm -hmm. was taken from me and transformed in the service of this other narrative that had nothing to do with me and how the knowledge that like nothing I will ever do personally will ever like be enough to overpower or take over that narrative that Mm -hmm. that is the thing that sort of I live with and struggle with to this day. And it's also, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, it's not just, you know, social media. That's a daily, the haters, you know, they're, they're, they're they're infinite because she deletes and blocks, deletes and blocks, but they're, there's always new people. There's people who follow her just to, because she, they're not allowed to comment on her Instagram unless they follow her. They yeah. follow her to call her a killer and a bitch, and then they get blocked, and then they'll make a new account and do it again. But it's also the actual media. It's the New York Post. You know, mm-hmm. it's, There's lots of outlets, the Daily Beast, um, that hate Amanda, basically. Mm-hmm. And whenever they have an opportunity to make her look unserious or stupid or dishonest in some way, um, they do. And they, of course, ignore anything that she does that's amazing, right? Yeah. Um, they're not covering our new podcast. They're not covering the fact that she's on the board of the Frederick Douglass Project. They don't cover mm-hmm. that. But when somebody found out that we legally got married, um, you know, before we had our official wedding, they called her a liar because we and we did that for health insurance. Who the fuck we, cares? You know, like, who the fuck cares? I know. Right? But, you know, they... It was, it was uh, the whole yeah, thing. They, she got relentlessly shamed by dozens of media outlets. Calling yeah. me a con artist. Calling her a con like, artist. Yeah. Like, it's, it's crazy. So that, that trauma is, like, ongoing. And in terms of, like, her getting triggered, you mm-hmm. know, if I see her, like, freeze up sometimes if the wrong email comes in and it's like, oh my God, you see what they're saying? Or you get a Google alert, like what, mm-hmm. who's talking about me where? Or someone even like photographing, you know, if we walk back before the pandemic, you know, if you walk down say a street in New York City and you see someone pointing a camera in your direction, she tenses up because she's been chased by helicopters yeah. of paparazzi, you know? Like, and most of the time, 
it's not a paparazzo. It's just someone taking a picture of a building or something. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it is a paparazzo. Yeah, or a so, random person, like you said, people yeah. at school. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. find? Do you find? And we'll get to the podcast in like, I'm, like maybe one more question. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally. do, you, do you find that like helping you get over your trauma was maybe like a radical acceptance of like, there's nothing I can do about this. Like that this this is a part of my life. It's always going to be. I can't now just pretend like it didn't happen and be angry if like, did it help you to maybe let go of anger and knowing that you probably can't change it? There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. There's no interview you can do to like make everyone in the world like you. Right. So, okay. One thing I will say is that thankfully I, I find myself to be constitutionally blessed where my first so like my emotional reaction to all of this mm-hmm. throughout the entire time like from beginning to end has not actually been anger mm, um, good i've i've not i i don't i very very rarely feel angry about what happened i feel very sad mm-hmm. um i feel sad um and i've felt sad for a long time um but what helps me is yes, the like radical, like the acceptance that like there, I can't make all of this go away. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's not something that's in my power. I don't feel helpless that I can't change it though, because I do feel like there is definite empowerment in making the best of a bad situation. And it's simply as simple as that, like Mm -hmm. being super present like trying to learn everything you can about human being, about yourself and other human beings through a sort of process of extremes. Mm-hmm. And then trying to think about what I can do with this special knowledge that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything positive that I can do? Yeah. And if the only positive thing that I can do today is like answer that email or like that Instagram message from a girl who says she's being bullied at school and she just wants to like know that someone else knows what it feels like. Like if that's the only good thing I can do today, that's a good thing. Yeah. And I learned that like in prison where it's like, I was very, very limited in what I was able to do at any given day. But if I could write a letter to my mom and do 300 sit-ups today, today Mm -hmm. was a day worth living and Mm -hmm. that's okay. (laughs) So, you know, being willing to like celebrate your small victories, um, in the midst of like this huge ongoing saga is kind of, I think the way that I'm dealing with it. I kind of love that. I feel like that could apply to so many things in people's lives that could totally help them. And I guess that sort of answered my question is like, is there any part of this that you are grateful for? But it sounds like you have found gratitude in all the little things. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, So much to be grateful for. Like even just like realizing that wrongful convictions are a thing. Oh yeah. I had no idea until it happened to me. And suddenly I'm like thrust into the world of like, now I have like a knowledge and I've, and, and a passion to like, understand better why these things go wrong and Mm -hmm. to understand how we can actually fix these problems because Mm -hmm. they're not insurmountable problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So sort of finding myself invested in in that world um, has been really fulfilling for me. 
And mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had that if it weren't. Totally. And you can help people that don't have a voice that haven't been acquitted and all that. Totally. Okay. So let's talk about your podcast. Uh, is the name at all an ode to David Bowie? <laughs> Gosh, I mean, we definitely were thinking of using some David Bowie. We should wear David Bowie costumes, though. It's Obviously. like one of my favorite movies, but also it's yeah. like I think it's also one of the scariest movies of all time, and I don't know why I think so. When he's like flipping around in that, like all the staircases, is yeah. horrifying. It's so. Um, it's also so oddly <laughs> sexual for like a kids movie. It's like he's like know. his hip. Yeah. It's David Bowie. Come yeah. on. <laughs> fair, fair. It's, there's a. It's a bit of a. It's that, and it's um, Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian short story writer. Oh, okay. Who wrote a story collection called Labyrinths. Which is super um, good if you, like, so, I'll have to look and, it up. And those are two yeah. very, you know, different polls that I think adequately show the breadth of this show. Because yeah. we do get weird and deep and philosophical, but we're, we also have a lot of wacky fun. Yeah, yeah, wacky fun where it's like, yeah. then this happens, then this happens. The first episode is very like, and then this happens. Oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> So tell me, um, tell me what it's about. Like, what's the, and what's the goal of it? Like, what, what, what do you want to uncover about people's stories and your own story? Totally. So we're, we're looking into stories of when people have felt lost, when they found, they found themselves in a situation where they don't know what the, you know, where they need to turn. They have a fork ahead of them. They don't know which way to turn. And they're just sort of on this journey that they didn't expect and they didn't ask for. And in the similar way that like I've tried to translate my own experience into having perspective and learning something, it's finding out what other people have learned by going through a, a, a process, a journey of uncertainty and, you know, that ends up defining you in some really significant way. Mm-hmm. Um, and realizing that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't end when you get out of that one place that you're stuck in, there's an, you're, on to the next one or you zoom out and you realize you're still you still have a lot of blind corners ahead of you and uncertain decisions um mm. so it's been really interesting to see where those dividing lines are for people like when did you know the place that we expected lavar burton to feel stuck was not the place that he felt stuck right mm-hmm. you know um yeah and you don't know that until you talk to somebody and ask them to dig into it yeah do you, um, also, Chris, have a? Do you personally have a story? Uh, I mean, I, I, I imagine most aren't as extreme as Amanda's. But do you have a personal story for you that kind of like spurred you to want to talk about your own, you know, labyrinth that you've been in? Yeah, I mean, my, I talk a little bit about this in, um, is it in the Lavar Burton episode or the which one? No, I think it's in. Now. We've Andrew been in, Yang's. we've been in editing madness. Oh yeah, it's in the Andrew Yang episode. Episode two comes okay. out on Friday. Sweet. Um, but yeah, I, I was an English professor for a little while in New York after grad school, and it was a terrible job. Um, it was a, I was an adjunct professor, so it's like low wages and a, um, no job security and no health insurance and overworked, mm-hmm. underpaid kind of thing. And then I discovered that um, there were these things called artist colonies, and I could just apply for these fellowships around the country and around the world. And if I got accepted, which I did, because I'm good at... He's very good at writing a <laughs> uh, entrance I can essay. Write oh, really? Essay, like, <laughs> yeah. That's a specific <laughs> skill. That's a good skill to have. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I realized I could just live for free by going to these fellowships. Oh, cool. And, you know, it'd be like a month at a time. 
it's not very long, but a month yeah. is, you know, a month rent free is what it was at the beginning. And then I could, I did another one and then I realized I could sort of chain them together if I applied enough. And oh, cool. I just kind of moved into the wind for about four years. And, so while I was in prison, know, yeah. he was a nomadic artist. Wow. Um, and it was, a, it was an amazing time in a lot of ways. I made tons of friends. I got a lot of writing done. I finished a novel, which I eventually sold. Um, but also a lot of things in my, my life collapsed because of that. Um, mm -hmm. I had no geographical stability. I was moving to a new place every month, sometimes every few weeks. Um, I had no permanent residence. Um, my relationships collapsed. Mm -hmm. A five-year relationship fell apart. Um, and so I, I just had no stability. I had no, before I had sold the book too, it was like I had, I had no career stability. I had no relationship stability. I had no geographical stability. And I got really suicidal. Um, yeah. And I started writing this really dark, sonnet sequence of, of suicidal sonnets um that <laughs> they're um, beautiful they're, at least it's a, and i like that it's alliteration um, at least yeah. suicidal sonnet. Um, <laughs> you know, and eventually i i decided to just stop doing that um and move back to seattle into my friend's basement mm -hmm. and i i remodeled his dank basement and built myself i built some framing and drywall and like made a room in an unfinished basement Mm -hmm. um, and taught myself some construction skills and yeah. that kind of, um, re-anchored me a little bit. And it was, a, you know, a year or so later, um, I sold a book and I kind of got back on my feet and then I met Amanda shortly after that. Yeah. Um, but I felt very, very lost in that time. And I, I had extracted myself from the job market, um, thinking that it would be liberating and freeing, which it was. Um, but then found that the burden of, having a structure and an order to my, not just my day, but my life fell entirely upon me. And yeah. I did, I felt just adrift, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if I recommend doing that. For, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for four, years. four years is a long time. <laughs> I wonder, yeah. I wonder if it feels like after a while, you're like almost running from something like running from like yourself a little bit. And then you have to kind of like come back and rebuild. And you also kind of like physically did start building something and let yeah. like it and I don't know if that, that helped you to like, maybe even just tactilely like, okay, I'm rebuilding this while I'm, you know, rebuilding my life as well. Is yeah, and, and the physicality of it, the immediate um, payoff of, hey, I built this. Look, it's a, it's a wall. I can touch it, you know? Yeah, like yeah. to do like four years of like sort of being everywhere, writing things that are on your computer yeah. Yeah. that exists sort or of. That you write, you know, like <laughs> totally. I worked on that book for a long time, for years. Like well, what's the name of your book? Uh, that book is called War of the Encyclopedists. Oh, um, interesting. And, you know, it's, it's good. Like, I gave it a great review. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say that I wasn't sleeping with them until after I wrote it. <laughs> so it's completely um, unbiased. Yeah. <laughs> totally unbiased. But it's, you know, it's intangible and it may not ever exist in the world. And mm -hmm. I've certainly worked on lots of other projects that I spent years on that no one has ever seen because it didn't get published, you know? Yeah. It's such um, a, that's the right. crazy thing about being like a writer or like even, you know, a podcast or anything like mm -hmm. where it's just like, is anyone ever, you have to just do it knowing it's possible that no one will ever read it, listen to it. And, but it's yeah. just... Totally. You know, those suicidal sonnets, only a handful of people have seen those. <laughs> maybe you should give them another go. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No. maybe now is a good time. Pandemic. 
Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. That's what people need to read. <laughs> Actually, though, the, the, the pandemic does feel appropriate for the podcast, I think, because totally. I feel like society in general feels very lost. And Unanchored. Everyone is like really uncertain of what the next few months is going to hold. Mm-hmm. It's okay. the craziest election. election in our living memory. Yeah. Um, so you know, digging into like what, what it's like to feel lost and how you navigate, that feels like the right thing for us. Yeah. And I feel like you guys make perfect hosts for that. I mean, even again, even though your story is not necessarily as extreme, that doesn't mean that it wasn't extreme for you in the moment. Like you only know what is like horrible for you in that moment. And I think one of the worst things another person can do is tell someone like, yeah, well, it could be worse. Do you know what happened to this person? Yes, 100%. Like I 100% agree with you because like one of the, one of the sort of goals that I have in this is to be like, whatever your circumstances are, like this first episode takes place on a cruise. If you're on a cruise, you're probably okay. Yeah. (laughs) But like there are things can happen on a cruise that can like push someone to the brink and like- that that human emotion is real yeah and so like that experience is real and it's just as valid as anything i went through or anything he went through or anything you went through and mm-hmm. we can all relate to it yeah so. totally and the season i think showcases that breadth we have a you know a woman who was in an arranged marriage to an al-qaeda operative i heard that in the trailer i was like oh my god right. i need to hear that yeah um, and then yeah. we have a, a guy who got separated from his wife while she was pregnant because of covid and um, travel exactly. restrictions and she's in the Philippines and he's in the States and he can't get to her. He can't you know, get and it's to like, her. that's a shitty situation. And How do you really guys emotional. find all these stories? Are people submitting them to you or? Um, so some of them like that, that guy right there is a friend of ours. Um, okay. and other people, we just blindly DM in the hope that they answer. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it's just like, Hey, yeah, know, it's, it's a combo. I mean, I did that got, to you. Us, you <laughs> Worst know. thing someone can say is no. Yeah. You know? yeah, exactly. So you just try, you reach out. Um, so it's a combination of calling in, you know, friends and favors and cold calling. Yeah. And, and thus the podcast world goes round. I love it. <laughs> well, I won't take up any more of your time. I've like already taken up over an hour, but thank you guys both so much for doing this. I, yeah. I'm happy that you got to join too. It's been interesting to hear your perspective and like how you guys met and all that. Yeah. yeah.